you all for leading us in worship. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, if you're joining us uh, for the first time, we're, we're thankful to be able to worship with you this morning. Uh, we'll be in the book of Ecclesiastes if you'd like to go ahead and turn there. Particularly chapter 3. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get to it. Lord, we are thankful uh, for um, this morning. We're thankful for an opportunity to worship you, to, to uh, sing songs that are true, to worship in spirit and in truth, to be uh, encouraged uh, in that, um, to do what it says in Romans, to gather and with one voice in a unified manner glorify you um, by proclaiming your goodness. Uh, we are thankful for that this morning, and we humble ourselves before you this morning, eager uh, to hear from you this morning, not just from uh, a guy, but from you. Lord, a few specifics we want to bring up this morning. Uh, first, want to pray, continue to pray for Terry Blankenship. Pray for uh, his recovery. Um, I know that there have been some steps forward, and as, as pastor at First Baptist, um, you know, our desire is for, for full recovery so he can get back to doing uh, uh, his, his pastoring and living life with, with his family. And so we pray uh, uh, for recovery there. And we also humble ourselves uh, before you and, um, and know that you're in control and know that something as crazy as bee stings can, can um, change what's going on very quickly. And that, that, that though it may have taken us by surprise, did not take you by surprise. And so I pray that his family, his church, his friends are are retreating into you and going to you for comfort and encouragement and that they would not see it as a means to, to not trust you but to, to, uh, to hold fast and to stir one another up. Lord, I pray uh, for his family that you would just comfort them in a way that really no one else can, can comfort. Um, give them peace that exceeds understanding because there are times we know that understanding is not there to be had. Uh, we also want to pray for um, uh, E.J. Weiss and their, and their family as um, they are uh, friends with the Morrises and as they're um, dealing with what, what looks to be the soon um, loss of a loved one. I know they've been praying through that in their small group, praying for that family. And we pray that you would give them peace and encouragement as they, um, as they walk through that very hard thing today. Lord, we also uh, just pray for our time this morning. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes and there's a lot in it that doesn't make sense if you don't help us uh, to make sense of it. And so I pray that you would do that this morning and encourage us in it. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began uh, a, a two-part series on Ecclesiastes. It was our meaningless Mother's Day uh, last week where we considered all in the book of Ecclesiastes that is meaningless as wisdom literature... The aim of this book that we're going to continue in this morning is to impart wisdom. The aim of these books is to impart wisdom that we would actually gather here today, read through these verses, consider it, um, preach through it, and that maybe we would grow in wisdom by doing just that. And the wisdom that we found last week was that of an eternal perspective. So if you weren't here last week, listen closely to the next few minutes because this week's sermon definitely builds on last week's sermon so the wisdom that we gained last week from in considering the verses in Ecclesiastes is the wisdom of an eternal perspective. 
what we considered first was all the meaningless things under the sun. Remember the, the book of Ecclesiastes is written in such a manner where I mentioned last week that, um, that Matt Chandler, when he was teaching through it, just felt like he needed to give the guy a hug because he just seemed so focused on all these things that were having no point, no meaning, no value, no worth, but they were all vanity and vapor. And our long list of meaningless included the obvious things like dreams and lots of words and insatiable roving appetite, injustice, the laughter of fools, all meaningless. Then we continued on with the questionable things, pleasure, popularity, public approval, all meaningless under the sun. And then finally, things that are even more troubling and um, we may actually like these things, youth and vigor. Remember, we talked about the mall walkers last week. All that toil and hard work can accomplish. Money, wisdom, love of money. And then the teacher in Ecclesiastes even went as far as to say his own life, all the days to come in the future are all meaningless under the sun. And what we considered last week is that phrase under the sun is very important. Because what we found was that everything is meaningless because of our inability to remember anything. I shared that very encouraging statistic with you, that study that says within five generations, generally, everyone will be forgotten. So everyone in this room, be encouraged. Within five, sometimes four, even more encouraging, you'll be completely forgotten. Your name may not be remembered. Your pictures may be lost because um, we have a terrible inability to remember anything. And we found in 2.16, look at 2.16 in Ecclesiastes. In chapter 2.16, just a little bit before 3, He says, For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So everything under the sun is meaningless because we can't remember it because we die. That was the encouraging message last week, but it didn't end there. We found that the culprit behind meaninglessness is death. Think of it in terms of the wages of sin. The wages of sin is the culprit behind meaninglessness. What we see in in the garden was that death was not always the case. When Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, they, they were placed there as eternal beings, and death didn't enter the equation until they had fallen into sin. And Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. So if that's all you got, your life is meaningless, absolutely meaningless. Because the wages of sin is death, and everyone in here is a sinner. And we inherited the sin of our forefathers, Adam and Eve, our four parents, Adam and Eve. The wages of sin is death, but it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, but the free gift of God in Christ is eternal life. And so the good news of the gospel is that while death renders everything meaningless, and that was very discouraging last week, the good news is that Jesus Christ conquered death. He suffered on the cross. On the third day, he rose again. He conquered death thereby conquering meaninglessness. That was what we talked about last week. Or to say it another way, Jesus Christ conquered death and gave your life significant meaning in doing so. In conquering death, Jesus gave your life significant worth in doing so. So that may be just an automatic, immediate, upfront encouragement for someone who's sitting here wondering, what's the point? What's the point in life? My life has no point. If you're in Christ, your life has significant worth, significant value, and significant meaning. And we found affirmation in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 that told us to be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's a very different message than what we originally heard in Ecclesiastes, that everything, all your labor, your toil, striving, it's in vain. But what we find in Christ is for those who are in Christ, your labor is not in vain. So work all, all the more um, diligently and wholeheartedly because your labor in Christ is not in vain. Shane and Shane wrote a song explaining what we engaged last week. They actually heard the sermon online, went to the studio, and cut a track. It was amazing. I, I was encouraged by it. Um, actually, they wrote it a few years ago, and it's called Over the Sun. And the lyric is, sitting around the fireplace with a friend who's been through it all. Solomon, wisest one, tell me, what have you found under the sun? And under the sun, he answered, get over the sun where life is hidden. That was a song that was written a few years ago, and it kind of it does a good job of, of summarizing what we engaged last week, that in order to find meaning, you have to make sure your perspective of things and your perspective of reality is not limited to that which is under the sun, for life is hidden elsewhere, true life. This week, that's the, that's the recap from last week, so if you weren't here, you're, you're up to speed and you're good to go. The, uh, this week, we're going to have one main point. This week, we'll have one main point. We all know that a good sermon generally has three main points, and they all start with the same letter. This week, we will not have a number of points, and we will have no alliteration. We will have one point, and there's a reason for that. The reason for this is that what we're going to engage today is going to take further consideration. I have no um, preconceived notion that I will stand here today and deliver this message to you, and you will leave here knowing everything you need to know about what we talked about. Done. I don't have that ability, and neither do you. What we're going to engage today, we'll need to continue to take into further consideration. Oftentimes we think of literature, wisdom literature, as intensely practical. It it's almost seems like we can read lots of the wisdom literature, and it seems immediately applicable. Like, do this, and you'll get this. Don't do this, and you won't get this. And some of it is that applicable. What we're engaging today is not. And you need to know that up front. It's not the case with what we'll consider today. It won't be enough to hear these truths one time. An encouragement I want to start with today is 2 Timothy 2, verse 7. You can write it in your notes. You don't have to turn there. But it says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. This is something that I've often wanted to have written above the door so that you can see it on your way out every morning. Think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding. There's two things that this means. First, it means that anything worth listening to is worth thinking about. Congratulations. If you're here this morning, you have decided that whatever is spoken is worth listening to. You've already made that decision. We can't go back on it. If you stand up and leave now, it'll be awkward for everybody. You're here. We're going to listen to some things. But what that scripture says is anything worth listening to is worth thinking about. And in thinking about it, the Lord will give you understanding. So I'm so thankful that it's not necessarily my responsibility or anyone else's responsibility who might stand up here to give you complete understanding, but in fact, we hear these things and we go because we've listened to them and we say it's worth thinking about. And we know that in thinking about them, the Lord will give us understanding. I've been thinking about what we'll engage today for months, and I preach this sermon still thinking and still considering, and I will continue to afterwards. Last week, we learned that part of true wisdom is having an eternal perspective. And this is our one point for the morning right here. So if you're taking notes, make sure you write this down because this is our only point. Today, we'll consider that an eternal perspective always considers the eternal nature of God. 
an eternal perspective, always considers the eternal nature of God. I've just asked you to do something you can't do. I've just said we're about to embark on a little journey this morning to, to try to, to do something that we actually can't fully do. You, you can consider the eternal nature of God, but you can't fully comprehend the eternal nature of God, and that's going to be what we're considering this morning. We're going to consider a little bit together, step by step, the eternal nature of God. And we'll do that in chapter 3. So look at Ecclesiastes 3, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 15. Ecclesiastes 3, 9 through 15, and this will be our text for the morning. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So what we have here, remember we have this, it's likely Solomon, maybe, maybe not. There's good arguments on both sides, but it's at least someone a whole lot like Solomon. And he's a guy who we know in chapter 1 who he wants to see and look and try to perceive everything that man is doing under the sun to figure out what's the point and what's the value in it and where can value be found, where can we go beyond something that's just meaningless. He wants to apply wisdom to understand that. And so this teacher... Koheleth is what he's called here. This teacher or preacher wants to understand the business of man and wants to see, man, where is it, where is it worthwhile? And he says, what gain is the worker from his toil? So you picture this person very wise, observing. I'm watching people who are toiling and working. What gain is there? He says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful, to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So we're going to take this one little piece at a time. And first I want us to consider what are the things that we're busy with from day to day. I want you to immediately consider your own life as I ask this question. We're not speaking in ethereal, nebulous, fluffy terms of possibility. We're talking about actual things that you are actually busy with every single day because it says, I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. So what is that? Well, for us, it would be everything from marriage to work, kids, potty training, oh my goodness, upkeep of the house, paying the bills, exercise, friendships, Hobbies, what have I not mentioned that's on your list? Consider these things that you are to be busy with every day. What I want us to see is where these things come from. What does the verse say about where they come from? I want you to see it. Look Look at verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So where does all these things that we engage day in and day out, where are they from? Well, they're from God. Where do those things come from? They, they come from God. To be clear, 
the main reason that you are busy with these things each day is that God gave them to you to be busy with. That's why you do the things you do each day. God gave you some things to be busy with. I've already mentioned it once. I'll mention it again. Work was not a result of the fall. The things we're called to be busy with were not a result of the fall. Even hard work was not a result of the fall. Feudal and sweaty work was a result of the fall, but not necessarily hard work in itself. He put them in the garden to keep it. What I want us to see here, just I just want to stop for a moment and take into reality, take into account the reality that God has given you the things to be busy with that you're busy with. Some of us have a thinking that goes along the lines of, you know what, as soon as I can get my kids grown up and out of the house, become a millionaire so I can pay all my bills and not have to worry about money, and then I can quit that sorry job that I hate so much, then I can live real life. Then, then I'll be happy. If I could just buy that thing, then I'll be happy. And that's escapism. And what I think this verse is telling us at the very least is you have to resist escapism. You have to resist this notion that everything I'm busy with today is of the devil and it's stupid and I hate it. Because God has in fact given us things to be busy with. And that, that, that might be new to some of us sitting here. And it might, just might, change the way we look at our jobs or we look at our families we look at our marriages, that God has a, has a plan in there, that it's not meaningless, in fact, and that there are points to be considered in light of the eternal reality of God. We've already considered last week very thoroughly that everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless over and over again. That word is used 39 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. But what else do we find about everything here? Look at verse 11. He has made everything Beautiful in its time. So which is it? Teacher, is everything meaningless? Or is everything beautiful in its time? We've already said that Jesus changes everything. Jesus takes the life that is otherwise meaningless, pointless, big waste of time, and gives it deep, deep meaning. And so here we see what's the difference. What is it? Is it beautiful in its time or is it meaningless? And I want us to see that this is what happens when we apply an eternal perspective. This is what happens when we apply an eternal perspective. What I want us to see here is that there are some things that we will have to deal with in life. This is the uncomfortable part of the sermon. There are things you're going to have to deal with in life that are not enjoyable. They're not enjoyable. There are things we'll have to deal with in life that will take our energy. It will take our time. It will take our resources. And at that moment, those things will not be beautiful to you. That's what this verse is saying. That's what Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us, to impart wisdom to us. There's things that you're going to have to face that when you're facing them, they won't be beautiful to you. They may be terrible to you. They'll be difficult. And they won't be beautiful. But when you apply an eternal perspective to that temporary thing, you will know, as it says in Ecclesiastes, that everything is beautiful in its time. It may be that an hour later, it may be a decade later. It may be grandchildren later, generations later. But in Christ, everything is beautiful in its time. It may not make sense to us now. It may be very hard now. But it's not meaningless. It's beautiful in its own time. I was trying to think of a, a really tangible example of this because we're getting into thoughts that could be a little heady. A little, oh, that's very 
mm, heady and, and, and wordy and, and, and it's a notion that's way far out here. And, and I think there's some things that we can do, some things we can hold on to that make it a little more tangible. And one of those is discipline. What does scripture say about discipline? At the moment, discipline is painful rather than pleasant. That's why when you are spanking your child, they don't say, thank you, pleasant. <laughs> they cry. It hurts. That's why when God disciplines you, you don't look at him and give him thumbs up in the moment. Usually, it'd be different if you did. But what we see in discipline is at the moment, it is painful rather than pleasant. It's beautiful in its time. At the moment, it hurts. Discipline is painful rather than pleasant, but it goes on to say later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. So when does it yield that peaceful fruit of righteousness? Later. Not in the moment. It's beautiful in its time. That's just one tangible example of what it means for somebody to be beautiful in its time so that it's not just meaningless. Take that into account when you discipline your own children. Don't just lose your temper and fly off the handle and spank them and scream at them. Take into account what I'm doing here is supposed to be beautiful in its time and have an effect that will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness if indeed my child is trained by what I am doing here. The next thing to consider is what God has put into man's heart. What does it say in verse 11? He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart. God has put eternity into your heart. If, if you've wondered why you have that feeling, whether you're a believer or not, why at some point you've ever had that feeling, of, there's got to be more to it than this, right? There's got to be more to just these few short years. There's got to be more to it than just what I can see, right? Right. And the reason you wonder about that, the reason that you set your mind on such things, is because God put eternity in your heart. He put it there. So to be clear... Up until this point, what have we gotten in these first few verses? Man has been given business to be busy with by an eternal God who has made everything beautiful in its time. And that same eternal God has put eternity into your heart. That's what we've got so far. And according to the second part of verse 11, why has God done this. Look at the second part of verse 11. Why has God given us these things to be busy with, made those things beautiful in their own time, and then put eternity into our heart? Why has he done that? And the, the answer is found in the second part of verse 11. You may be encouraged by this, you may not. And he also put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What? Why? I mean, that, that, if ever there was a moment where asking the why question was appropriate, it's this one that says why can never be known. It's this one that says when you ask why, you'll want to know why, but you can't ever know why. And I immediately say, why? What is that? You put eternity into my heart so that I can't know something? How does putting eternity into my heart limit me? What is going on here? The first time I read through this, it was, it was a moment of, am I taking crazy pills? This does not add up. Why would he make this happen? Why has God done it? So that you, sitting here today, and everyone else who has ever lived, 
no matter how hard we try, cannot find out or comprehend what God has done from the beginning to the end. Every control freak in this room is having a mini anxiety attack in their seat right now. What? He doesn't want me to know every detail from the beginning to the end? He doesn't want me to be able to see things exactly as he sees them? He doesn't want me to be God? Okay. What we have here is a divinely ordained quandary. He put eternity into your heart so that you can't perceive eternity. It's a divinely ordained quandary. I watched Sandlot with my kids yesterday. This is a pickle. Maybe the biggest pickle we've ever found ourselves in. If you're studying Ecclesiastes, the ESV Study Bible is a wonderful resource. The ESV Study Bible is a great resource because it just, very quickly, you can look at something and say, what the heck does that mean? And look over in the column and it says, oh, okay, well, I get it now because it's difficult to read through. But the Study Bible had one of the best notes on this area. It says, the preacher thus realizes that both his desire to understand all of life as well as the limitations on his ability to do so have been ordained by God. I'm going to read that again. The preacher thus realizes that both his desire to understand all of life, as well as the limitations on his ability to understand all of life, have been ordained by God. That's part of wisdom. Do you see what God has done here? God has given you a desire that he has made you unable to satisfy. To use Ben's lingo, he's given you an itch that you are unable to scratch. He's given you a thirst that you are unable to quench. And how do we respond to this quandary? What does it say in the next verse? Here we are all rendered just almost helpless together. It feels helpless. It feels hopeless. God gives us all this stuff to be busy with. I want to do it right. I want to, I want to do it the way God wants us to do it. I want to see it just how God sees it. And I, and I want to know, if, if I could know at the beginning of every endeavor how it's going to go at the end, that would just be great. If I could just see a little bit of the future, if I could know all the details that are going on, that would help me in my mind to be more fruitful. But here we all are together in the book of Ecclesiastes saying, he's given you things to be busy with and he put eternity, eternity into your heart so that you can't perceive those things. He's given you this desire, in fact, a very deep desire in some people, and an inability to quench it. So what do we do in verses 12 through 13? I perceived. It's this part. He just said, I gave you the desire, I put it into your heart, so you can't comprehend what you want to comprehend. And the very next verse says, I perceived that there is nothing better for them. That's strong words. There's nothing better for them than to be joyful, to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Does that seem simple to you? Are you sitting there thinking, man, what? Uh, can I get some more? No? Enjoy your lunch. That's what we're going to do today. Does that, does that satisfy you? So what do we do as worshipers? We'll be joyful, do good, eat, drink, take pleasure in toil as a gift from God. Again, the ESV notes, rather than becoming embittered by what God has not granted human beings, namely the ability to comprehend all of reality, 
One should enjoy the gifts that God has given. Where do you spend more of your time? Vexing, fretting, anxious, complaining about what you can't comprehend? Or enjoying the good gifts that God has given you? I I really want you to consider that question personally. Can you be joyful when you don't know what's going on? Can you do good when it's a little bit confusing on why to do good? What this means is that part of gaining wisdom is coming to grips with the reality that you're not God. And not only are you not God, but you cannot fully understand God. We work hard around here to understand God. We preach through the word verse by verse. We provide resources to help you to understand God. We take seriously the call in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We believe that when your minds are renewed, transformation actually takes place. We take seriously the call for you to better understand God and his will. But in doing that, we would be arrogant fools to think that we could come into a full comprehension of our great and eternal God. We would be fools. We would overstep a boundary that should never have been overstepped. So part of gaining wisdom is coming to grips with the reality that you're not God, one, and you cannot fully understand God. Now, I don't want to be insensitive here, and I don't want you, any of y'all, to take this information and go and be insensitive with it. Because if someone is struggling, and they're going through heartache, and they're going through some tragedy, you don't look at them and say, hey, you're not God, get over it. That's insensitive. So what do we do? Well, first, let's just consider when it's the most difficult. When we can't understand what's going on, when is it the most difficult? Well, it's the most difficult in times of sickness, death, calamity, confusion, injustice. If you've ever been victimized, probably one of the first questions you might ask of the Lord is, why'd that happen? Why couldn't you have stopped that? How's that beautiful in its own time? That's when it's most difficult. If you've ever had to bury a child, that's when it's difficult. If you've ever had a a loved one pass unexpectedly, it's difficult. If you've ever been at the doctor and they tell you that it is cancer, that's difficult. If you ever find out that a door you hoped was open has been shut, it is a difficult moment. So we don't need to be insensitive about what we're talking about here, but rather we need to apply it. We need to consider how we can wisely apply it. These are those moments where we often will acknowledge the immeasurable and inscrutable ways of God. We'll acknowledge that our God is mysterious, and frankly, we just want him to remove the mystery. God, I know there's more going on in this circumstance that is very difficult. I know there's more going on than I can know, but can you please just let me know? Just remove the mystery. I get it. You're mysterious. I can't handle the mysteriousness. I want to know how this will end. I want to know how I can make this better. I want to know how I can make this hurt less. We cry out to God and say, I don't care what the purpose is. This is too painful. I can't understand it. It makes no sense. And ultimately, I just want it to stop. So here's a question that I want us to consider in light of an eternal perspective that takes into account the eternal nature of God. This is a hard question. I want you to write it down. I want you to keep thinking about it. 
Can you still be thankful for what God is doing even if you don't understand what God is doing? Can you still be thankful for what God is doing even when you don't understand what God is doing? I have been terribly arrogant in this area. It was four months ago that for the first time in my life, I've been a pastor for longer than four months. Four months ago, for the first time in my whole life, I got on my knees and I thanked God for something that made no sense to me at all. In fact, the thing seemed stupid. It seemed ridiculous. And I was so puzzled by it that that's the first time in my life I ever hit my knees and said, I'm thankful even though I don't understand it. Let's pose it another way. Can you still follow God when God is doing something that you don't understand? Because a lot of times that's when people part ways. You'll encounter someone who's been through something terribly difficult, terribly confusing, hard. Maybe they were even a part of a church that mishandled something and they said, all right, church mishandles it, I'm out on God. And they'll go the other way because they're saying, I I don't get this. I can't understand this, can't comprehend this. Can you submit to God when God is doing something that you don't understand? Can you worship God when he's doing something that you can't fully comprehend? I want to put you at ease because I think some of us think that's insincere. Some of us struggle, I think, with saying, you know what? Um, I'm not going to worship God if I don't get it. I'm not going to thank him for something. I mean, even as I confess that, the thought of thanking him for something you don't understand, isn't that a bit insincere? And what I want you to know is biblically, that is not insincere. That's what we call faith. The opposite of faith is walking by sight. Of course I'm going to praise God when I can see and fully comprehend what he's doing in a circumstance. Of course I'm going to say, God is great, there was healing. But what if there's not healing? What if it doesn't make sense? What if it seems completely unfair? What if it is injustice? In those moments, it is not insincere to still praise the name of the Lord because he's bigger than the circumstance. He's eternally good and he's only good. So it's not insincere. It's, in fact, deep, sincere faith. Because rest assured, God will do things that don't make sense to you. If you're sitting in this room and that's never happened to you, if you're sitting here today and you're like, man, I've never experienced something that I thought was just pointless. I'm I'm happy for you. But I I would warn you, don't expect that to be the eternal norm. Rest assured. God will do something in your life that does not make sense. God will do things that don't make sense to us. And if we limit our worship of God, if we limit our worship of God to that which we understand, our worship is terribly malnourished. If we say, God, I will worship you within the category of things I can understand, God's like, oh, great, because I, um, I don't exist only within that category. I'm much bigger than that category. I blow that category to parts. Don't worship me just, be, just according to what you understand. Because if we just worship him according to what we understand, leaning on our own understanding rather than acknowledging him, our worship's terribly malnourished. To fear before him is to stand in awe of him. And to stand in awe of him is to stand in humble confidence. His, his, his worship, 
His worthiness of worship is not limited to how worthy I can immediately see and perceive that he is. He's revealed to us he's only good. So even in the worst circumstances, we can stand confidently, stand in humble confidence, in awe of our God who's bigger than us, bigger than our circumstances. I used to think that part of being a good Christian was to be able to always, always identify the silver lining. To be able to always identify the silver lining. And I even had a few circumstances where something really difficult was going on. And I would interject, um, trying, to, trying to be faithful. And I would interject and say, well, well don't lose sight of this, because this is the silver lining. And that's, in my mind, I was saying, well, that's all we got. We got some silver lining here, that's okay. But what if there's not silver lining? What if there's no silver lining? I used to think it was a good Christian thing to do to be able to identify the silver lining, but then I realized there's times where there's no silver lining to be identified. There's no sense to be made of. There's no sight to be had. Only faith that God is only good. There are times when someone is mourning and you are called to go and weep with those who weep. Sometimes that just means just shut it. Don't try to explain everything away. Don't try to make sense of their pain. It may not make sense right now. It's beautiful in its time. It may not be beautiful right now. It may be terribly hard right now. Weep with those who weep. He's only good. What this means is that by God's design, you will sometimes look, as a faithful Christian, a faithful follower of Christ, it is God's design that sometimes you will look at what God has done and you will genuinely conclude that makes no sense to me. And that's okay. Don't conclude that he must be a fool. Don't conclude that he must not be sovereign. Don't conclude that he must have fallen off his throne and taken a nap while I was going through something hard. You don't conclude that. But it's okay in the moment to to say, that makes no sense to me. I don't get that at all. But that doesn't mean you can't continue to worship a God who's only good. These are the times in life where walking by faith, I think, can be the most challenging, but also the most fulfilling. This is wisdom in Ecclesiastes. One pastor notes, if examining the sovereignty of God teaches us anything, it teaches us that real satisfaction comes not in understanding God's motives. We're all about motives. (laughs) Why are you doing what you're doing? But what he's saying is real satisfaction does not come in understanding God's motives, but in understanding his character and in trusting in his promises and leaning on him and resting in him as the sovereign who knows what he's doing and who does all things well. What does it mean to question God's motives? I think it's very likely that all of us have been guilty of this at some point in time. But what does it mean to question God's motives? Why do we think that that would give us comfort? Essentially, it's the created looking at the creator and saying, or the clay looking at the potter and saying, explain yourself. God is not a God who who wants you to flounder and to be miserable during difficult circumstances. He's not a God who doesn't care about your heartache and your pain. But rest assured, you have no right to look at God and say, explain yourself. He'll give you what you need. He loves you more than you can comprehend. His love toward you 
is lacking in nothing. There's no area where he can improve upon his love of his children. But rest assured, you have no right to look at him and say, explain yourself. I recently read a study that observes that the last few generations, especially here in the States, are among some of the first that think they deserve an explanation for everything. Do you feel like you deserve an explanation for absolutely everything? Generations that generally move in a manner that says, I will follow you as long as you are leading me where I think I need to go. Is that how it works with you and God? I will follow you as long as you are doing what I think you need to be doing. As long as you're healing who I think you need to heal. As long as you're providing resources where I think resources need to be provided. As long as you're opening the doors that I think need to be opened. This is entitlement. That's entitlement. We think that we deserve to know every detail of God's plan. And that's why it's important here in Ecclesiastes for this morning to consider. It is not important that you know every detail of God's plan. It's important that you know God. By his design, you'll in fact want to know every detail of his plan. But also by his design, you can't. That would be cruel if he was not perfect. But it's not cruel because he is perfect. Consider Joseph. We think we deserve to know every detail of God's plan. I was reading a book on humility by Mahaney, I believe it was. And um, he says to consider Joseph, his own brothers sold him into slavery. His own brothers sold him into slavery. The reason for doing that was that dad liked him more. They were jealous, so they sold their brother into slavery in Egypt. But what we never see in the book of Genesis is Joseph saying to God, explain yourself. I'm Joseph. You know who my dad is? What am I doing enslaved? Joseph never expects God to explain himself. Rather, he works hard and moves wisely and works his way up to the highest level of authority as an Israelite in Egypt. And ultimately, that puts him in a position to save generations of Israelites by giving them a place to live in the land of Goshen. When he got thrown into slavery, when his brother sold him off into slavery, do you think he got bound up and said, this is beautiful, fantastic, I wonder what God's going to do here. He's probably sad. He's probably broken hearted. He's probably terrified. Am I going to live for the next 24 hours? He was hurting. He was confused. He'd been victimized. He'd been wronged. What they did was evil, period. But he worked hard. And God blessed him immensely. In Clyde Kilby's 10 Resolutions for Mental Health. Why did I just bring up mental health? Because if you think you can comprehend everything that God comprehends, you're going to go crazy. Been there. I've started to view mental health the way I view physical health. It's not very wise to consider physical health when you are completely physically messed up. It's not wise to finally begin to consider physical health when, when you can't walk to the refrigerator without losing your breath. 
It's, it's not good to think about physical health only when physical health is gone. Think about it daily. Move consistently in it. Go for a walk. Consider your diet. Mental health is the same way. We talk about mental health as if, oh, that's just for crazy people. We're all a little crazy, if we're going to be honest about it. So view mental health the same way you view that. Work on it every day. What do you do? How do you move? What do you think about? What do you set your mind? What do you do the first, when you first wake up in the morning? What's the last thing you do at night before you go to bed? What disciplines do you have in order that can help you to think in a healthy manner about eternal matters? Clyde Kilby has 10 resolutions for mental health, and in one of them he says, I shall stop boring into myself to discover what psychological or social categories I might belong to. Who am I? Why am I here? Why don't people think this way of me when I want them to think this way of me? Do I even belong here? Am I, can I be understood? Am I, am I different? Am I lower than everybody? Am I higher than everybody? What is it? He said, I, I shall not do that. Mostly, I shall simply forget about myself and do my work. That's good advice. The, the goal there is not to think less of yourself. It's to think of yourself less and do your work. That's one of his resolutions for mental health. And that's what Joseph did. That's what Joseph did. In doing so, God has taught us that even being sold into Egyptian slavery was beautiful in its time. How about that? It wasn't beautiful at the moment. It was terrible at the moment. But it was beautiful in its time. Even being sold into Egyptian slavery was beautiful in its time. And that, 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 that what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. It says it. It doesn't say God pulled a, a sneaky maneuver to shift this to make it good. He said, you meant it for evil. I meant it for good, but it's beautiful in its time, so you won't see that in the moment. It'll be difficult, but I'm good. And, and rather than run away from me, retreat into me. Look at verses 14 through 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away I think this is in the ESV, but it says the short-lived, temporary, fleeting vanities of the world, the things you deal with every day that seem temporary, fleeting, vain, serve to reveal the enduring and eternal nature of God. We can't add to or take away from what God is doing. But what we can do is allow his purposes to have their intended effect when we're in the middle of it. When we're in the trenches, in the day-to-day warfare that we're called to, Spiritual forces, darkness, battling for the gospel. In those day-to-day moments, we can allow God's purposes to have their intended effect. And that intended effect was seen in verse 14. What is it? Look at it with me. God has done it so that people fear before him. God has done it so that people fear before him. If you study the fear of the Lord in the scriptures, you'll find that it's, it's in large part a fear of falling away from God. You find yourself in the midst of something that doesn't make sense. You say to yourself, then God must not make sense. And if he doesn't make sense, I don't even know if he's real. And if he's not real, what am I doing with my life? And you find people, they'll, they'll usually distance themselves from God. And then in time, they'll shelve God. And then in time, they'll forget he's there. And they'll go on with their life. They may even try to live and be a good person. 
But something will happen that will drive them from God, and a fear of the Lord is something that says, I fear being driven away from God. I fear falling away from God. Fear of the Lord creates in you something that says, I'm going to hold fast. I'm going to stay here. That's why it's so important for you to be a part of a people. That's why there's no biblical category for Lone Ranger Christians. Because we're part of one another and we need one another to stir each other up by way of reminder, to stir each other up by love, to do love and good works. But the problem is people walk away from God because they don't fear God. Don't think of it backwards. Sometimes we think of it backwards. They fear God too much so they ran away from him. No, anyone who has ever run away from him was because they didn't fear him enough. Because if you truly fear him and you believe what he has revealed about himself in the most terrible, difficult, confusing moments, you will retreat into him. That psalm's shadow of his wings. You'll go to him for comfort rather than look for it somewhere else. Because think about all the other places we look for it and how we're left so terribly wanting when we do. I think a good closing question for us to consider is what does it look like for a follower of Christ who has an eternal perspective to fear before God? First, it doesn't mean that you can't be sad. I want to be careful with this because you may hear what I'm saying and say, okay, I guess I just better buck up, put on my big boy pants and be fine with sad circumstances and heartache and confusion. No, it's okay for you to be sad. He's the one who calls out to you in your sadness. He's the one who calls out to you and says, if your yoke is heavy, take my yoke upon you. It's light. He's the one who calls out to you and says, are you thirsty? Come to me and drink. He's the one who said to the little children, no, let them come to me. He's the one, according to Psalm 78, who gathers up those who have little ones and carries them in his bosom when it's needed. That's happened to you before. You may not have known him, but it happened to you. He's the one who comes to you when you're faint. He doesn't say, don't be faint. He comes to you when you're faint. There's times where he says, be strong, be steadfast, do the work of the Lord. Don't stay in a perpetual state of faint-heartedness, but know that in your faint-heartedness, he has many, many blessings to offer, namely himself, to you. So it doesn't mean that you can't be sad. It doesn't mean that you can't weep. Rather than getting frustrated with people who are weeping because they're confused or they're heartbroken, weep with those who weep. Show them that your heart has been, in fact, affected by the greatness of God. It doesn't mean you can't struggle with confusion. God's not saying, I've made myself clear that I'm eternal and you're going to want to understand me, but you can't understand me, so don't be confused. He's saying, you'll be confused because you're not me. God says you're not God. You'll, you'll be confused. So it doesn't mean you can't struggle with confusion. But don't part ways with him when you're confused. Seek answers. Scripture says you have not because you ask not. If you want answers about what God is doing or namely who God is when it doesn't make sense on what he's doing, you'll, you can find them. He will step by step incrementally show you things. And they'll be a comfort and encouragement to you. It doesn't mean you can't mourn. Ecclesiastes itself says there's a time for mourning. It does not mean that you can't mourn. So what does it mean to have an eternal perspective and to fear before him? I think an eternal perspective just means it doesn't end there. It doesn't stop there. When you're sad, when you're confused, when everything is falling apart, 
when it seems crazy, when it seems cruel even, I think that eternal perspective just doesn't end there. But it continues. Rather than turning from faith and running from God, biblical wisdom retreats into the Lord. Biblical wisdom submits to the revealed realities that God is only good. And though I may not understand it, I believe it. Biblical wisdom accepts the gifts of God. It is wise and helpful, according to our Bible, to enjoy a good meal when it's there to be enjoyed. That may seem so simple. I mean, I'm looking at a room full of faces that are like, are you serious? Enjoy a good meal? I'm freaking out here. You just told me to go have lunch. Enjoy a good meal when it's there to be enjoyed. Enjoy it with the people that God's put around you. Savor a refreshing drink when it's there to be savored. Take pleasure in your work when there's work to take pleasure in. And joyfully do good to others when there's good that can be done. That's how we move forward. That's the three mile an hour walk. That's the plotting. That's the effect. If you can do that in this eternal, this temporary life that's filled with lots of heartache, if you can do those things, that's deeply wise. And it's pleasing to the Lord. And he blesses such things. Let's pray and then we'll take our supper. Lord, I'm thankful for your word. Um, Lord, I've trusted you in the preparation of this sermon. I've trusted you in the delivery of this sermon. And I absolutely trust you to give understanding, even if it's just a little bit at a time, as we think about these truths. Lord, I confess that um, I feel very, very small preaching this sermon. And I confess that it's difficult not to have anything that's just immediately applicable that we can go do. But Lord, help us to to take the time this week to sit in awe, to take the time this week to consider eternity, to take the time to consider our eternal God who is only good. Lord, you've created us with a desire to want to know what you know, but you have limited our ability to know those things. And the point of that is that we would fear before you. So what I hope is that we would fear before you that it would be a biblical fear that doesn't drive us from you, but that draws us into you. Lord, I pray also for relief this morning for those of us who feel the need to be in control of absolutely everything. Lord, I pray for relief that maybe for the first time in a long time, some of us may be able to sit back and take a deep breath and rest in a sovereign God who is in control. I pray for those of us who are here who don't really care about any of the details and who don't struggle with anything that we've mentioned this morning. I pray that at the very least, they would be encouraged by a very great God who has been, is, and will continue to tend to the details that they have entrusted to you. Lord, I pray that we would raise children who think like this. 
I pray that we would affect generations four or five generations away from us, a hundred generations away from us, not caring if they know our name, but caring that they know the name of our Lord. Lord, we want to move in biblical wisdom, not so that we can figure it all out, but so that we can glorify the one who has it all figured out. We want to move in biblical wisdom so that we can put on display the greatness of our great God. We're about to take this supper in your name because your name is worthy. It's holy, and you're only good. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It says in, a, in a Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes because it's in his death that meaninglessness is conquered and our lives have significant worth. And so as we distribute the elements, I want to encourage you to consider the eternal nature of God. I'm certainly not expecting you can sit there and wrap your head all the way around that, but just consider it and consider how it might affect the way you view things in your life. What we've considered this morning is a weakness, a limitation on you in your flesh. I hate weakness. I struggle with it. I, I, use, I used to, in fact, view weakness the same way I viewed sin. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And if I saw weakness, well, let's put that to death too. It's just getting in the way. This is a weakness and a limitation that is not getting in the way of strong faith. It is one that fuels it. It has to be embraced to that degree. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it explains this far more eloquently than I can, so I will just read it. If you're struggling with the thought that God would give you a purposeful limitation, consider this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed. It's okay to be perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That's what we anticipate when we take this supper. For it's all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, 
our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It is Christ who has worked such wonder in our lives through his finished work on the cross. It is in Christ that we don't lose heart, and it is in Christ that we anticipate a beautiful eternity where everything's beautiful in its time with a great God who loves us deeply. In light of that, take and eat. Take and drink. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ who has given us access to an eternally great God. We thank you for hearing our prayers this morning as we offer them up. We thank you for being enthroned on our praises as we offer them up. We thank you for giving us understanding as we offer up even our thoughts in light of your eternal nature. We're, we're all so small, so limited, so fragile, so common. But that's to show that the surpassing power belongs to you and not to us. So help us to take that into account as we consider how to live in this manner so that people will look and not see how great we are, but see your great power. As we continue in worship, I pray that we would do so wholeheartedly. As we continue with the offertory, in baptism, in presentation of new members, and things that are all part of our worship, let us draw near carefully and offer up a wholehearted sacrifice in wholehearted praise. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are a baptizing and supping people. That's something that the church is and should be about. We sup each week and we baptize when the Lord um, brings new life. And I want to share um, a passage with you. It's one that you're going to hear in the next few minutes as I share a testimony from Casey Francis who's about to be baptized. So let me turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you'd like to turn there, you're welcome to. I know the, uh, the morning's sort of coming to a close, but it's a beautiful reference for um, what is happening in the event of, bab- of a baptism. In many ways, it is like a marriage ceremony, but like a, like a marriage ceremony, it's more than a marriage ceremony. God reckons something happening in that moment. A man and woman come into a church building as two people, and they leave in the eyes of God, one. So there's something very profound that takes place in the event of baptism. And this is a beautiful passage that points towards some of these realities. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. It's key. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. 
baptism, which corresponds to this, to this appeal, to this reference to Noah, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. There's some beautiful realities in this passage, one of which is this appeal. It is more than a ceremony because what is taking place here is a faith appeal on Casey's part. We are witnesses to. She is appealing to God for salvation, not based on anything she has ever done or could ever do. But her appeal to God is for a clean conscience based on what Christ has done alone. If you've been paying attention the last few months in Hebrews, you know that is the only way to find a clean and purified conscience through the finished work of Christ. His single sacrifice accomplished what the blood of a thousand bulls and goats could never accomplish. It cleaned the conscience and purified the conscience of the worshiper. And it's with that purified conscience that Casey is making that appeal this morning based on his work alone, based on his righteousness alone. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment where she's making that appeal through the event of baptism. This little reference to Noah here is a beautiful escort to some other pictures in our Bible. We had a two-sermon series that was part of our church series a few years back where we examined baptism. What is it? And we found there that cover to cover, there are examples and pictures of baptism where God is delivering his people through the watery ordeal. Noah and those that were saved with him are a beautiful picture of that. They are delivered through the watery ordeal. Another little picture is Moses and his tiny little ark in the Nile. Tiny little basket that his parents put together for him where he's delivered through the watery ordeal because that's what God does. He delivers his people through ordeal. Then there's Israel that crosses the Red Sea with the armies of Egypt right behind them pressing in. And they find deliverance through the watery ordeal, stepping across on dry ground. And then that water envelops the Egyptian army. And then there's Israel crossing the Jordan into the promised land. What we find in baptism, when we're connecting all these thoughts to what Christ has done, then we find there that it is what's taking place here that we're enjoying is that Christ is our ark in the flood of judgment. And he's a good one. Christ is our deliverance from the armies of Pharaoh as he's pressing in on our guilt and our sin. Christ is our passage from the wilderness to the promised land. Oh, man, our Bibles are rich with beautiful imagery of what's taking place here. God does what he does, delivering us through the watery ordeal. Casey, why don't you go ahead and come on up? I'm going to share something that Casey has written. Come on up and go ahead and step into the baptism pool there, and you can go ahead and be seated in there. It's warm, I promise. <laughs> if it were frigid, I wouldn't do that to you. We'd wait till the last minute, but it's bath warm. I think, from what I've heard. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I asked Casey, I met with Casey the other day, and uh, we talked through some of what's taking place today and talked through what God has done in her life, and I asked her to prepare something uh, that either I could read or she could read, and she said, I'll prepare something, but you read it. She said, I won't be able to get through it. So I thought I would share this and then just share a few thoughts from what she shared with me in that meeting. 
This is from Casey. Never in my life has any one person been able to convince me of the truth spoken about in the Bible, no matter how many ways or how many times I've been told. I always had reservations. My life had become so polluted with unknowing sin that I never came to terms with all the scriptures and was quite content being on the fence when it came to religion. Never picking a side and thinking to believe in something unseen was for fools. At the same time, declaring you don't believe it's even possible for God to exist seemed even more foolish. For me to be here today, I'm sure, is very surprising to many people in my life. But no one's more amazed than myself. I'm still completely in awe of the changes that God has made in me. I have now seen and am forever changed. For me, it wasn't, matter of, wasn't a matter of me wanting to change my ways or me wanting to be saved. God wanted to save me. <laughs> the decision was not one I made, but one made for me by the only one capable of making it. I have no doubt in my mind that nothing but the Holy Spirit changed me from the inside out, taking away all doubt and leaving all hope. From that point on, I was a new creation with a new purpose and a new destination. She shares then a passage from Isaiah 41. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. She says, today I make an appeal to God for a clean conscience from my sin and a good conscience guiding me in the pursuit of righteousness. Apart from God, there is no other way to do this. I now, with the power of the Holy Spirit and my faith in Jesus as my personal Savior, commit my life to being a true disciple of Christ and an imitator of God. When I met with Casey earlier this week, I asked her a couple of questions. The first one was, who has God used? She said here pointedly, made the point to say, nobody could convince me of this. It's something that God had to do. But yet there are people that came up in the next few minutes, like her sister, Erin. Like the Adels as a family. Like Pam Simmons. Like the Monies. Like Robin Ashmore. Like small groups, the multiple small groups that Casey is part of, like 12 of them. <laughs> she also shared that her mom, Joanne and Wanda, had had a part to play, that God used them. It sounded like Lois and Eunice to me. Sweet. The other question that I asked her is, how has he drawn you and what has he done? And she said these a few, a few statements she made there, you heard in her testimony, she changed me from the in, or he changed me from the inside out. It was not an overnight event. The change was over time. He grew in me a feeling and an awareness of wrong and sin. And I'm just going to give the Holy Spirit credit for that. Because they weren't addressed in any sermons in the last few months. Those specific things she's talking about, they weren't specifically addressed. The Holy Spirit has been doing that. There were things taken away, and they were replaced with something else. Thankfully, we have a good God that when he takes stuff out of us, he puts better stuff in us. And in her case, a desire for purity and holiness. And this is what I enjoyed most. She said, I wasn't trying for this. It just happened. 
I love it. It sounded like John 6.44 to me, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That word draws is the word in Greek that means drag. He found me. He saved me. I love that testimony. And I love, too, (laughs) it's such an encouragement to me that Casey came to faith as we are preaching through the book of Hebrews. Who would have ever thunk that God would use the book of Hebrews in six six chapters of Jesus as the perfect and better high priest to transform someone's heart and shed light and open the eyes of her hearts to faith? Six chapters of Christ as high priest, and then three beautiful let us's. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider how to stir one one another up to love and good deeds. Beautiful, beautiful realities that God has used to open the eyes of Casey's heart in faith. And I'm going to go ahead and um, I think that's all I I want to share. You've been sitting there long enough little pruned. (laughs) All right, let me see what I need to shut down here. Casey, do you have any hope of being saved apart from Christ's work? Are you trusting in him as your Savior and Lord? Casey Francis, based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Attention to the screen for a short video, if you would. 